Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Um, Merry Advent 4 to you, Scott, and to our listeners. Um, that was Bruce Coburn uh, from his Christmas album, CD, and um, the title was Mary Had a Baby. It's a great song. She did have a baby indeed. She did, and that's what we are here. I don't listen to uh, Coburn, I just admit it. I have a few songs, and I'm, I'm going I'm no. to bone up on it. Uh, long-time listener. I've never called him, though. <laughs> uh, first time. Long-time first time. Yeah. Long-time first time. Yeah. No, so, I enjoy his music a lot, and he's a interesting spiritual journey. He, uh, he published a memoir last year that I have not finished, but I find it really interesting. He's, um, uh, yeah, uh, his faith journey is a, is a fascinating one as well. And he's Canadian. He is Canadian. Yeah, great guitar player, an amazing guitar player. Canada, our quiet neighbor to the north. Or our future home. Or our future <laughs> By the way, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees are out. And gracing the list prominently are Tupac, Journey, and Pearl Jam. That's an interesting combination. Among others. I mean, but, Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm surprised Tupac is not in yet. I didn't... Well, you know, of course, that's rock and roll. It's, it's basically... Pop mu- music. Music industry Hall of Fame, yeah. Do you know that Green Day has been together longer than Pearl Jam? Uh, if I thought about that, I think I probably knew that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, same thing. Like, if I think about it, I, but it's one of those things that, like, it's hard for me to fathom. Right. Right. Well, uh, we want to, many things are in mind. First off, we want to dedicate this episode to the memory of Dr. Howard Baker, who died last year. He was a friend to us both. Uh, I think I introduced the two of you. Yep, you did. And he died on December 21st. And <laughs> just a wonderful human being who uh, one day I remember, he had, he was one of those guys who had a, a late adult awakening, mm-hmm. reawakening right. faith. I mean, he had many awakenings. I remember him emailing me one day after we had talked and we were reading some stuff together. He said, you shit. I think I believe in the Trinity now. <laughs> so it was just a wonderful yeah. person who yeah. uh, exhibited a virtue that I think is lacking in most of our culture. He, he, he was a man, a left of center kind of guy, but had all these conservative friends and had a weekly lunch at the Union League he would go to in downtown Philly private club and intentionally with kind of the arch elite conservatives of downtown of Philly, <laughs> the sort of waspy conservatives, because he just thought mutual understanding was incredibly important. And he consistently did that. No, that, that is an amazing virtue. And we do wish peace and uh, comfort to his family and friends. As in the words of Julian Norwich, all will be made well. Amen to that. And so it's appropriate given, uh, Howard's openness to other ideas that we talked to someone who for both of us have become a very important and influential thinker that more people are finding out. Uh, Thomas Hollick, who is a Czech, uh, who is both a priest, theologian, and a clinical therapist as well. He was ordained during the uh, Soviet period, so was ordained in secret. Yeah. He said there was one seminary 
in the whole country, but it was totally controlled by the secret police. And because he was a friend of Vlachov Havel and other things, he was on the list. So he couldn't get in anyway. Right, right. right. Uh, so he brings a unique kind of very first-rate philosophical, theological mind with um, many, many hours talking to other people, both as a priest and a therapist. So he has, I think, unique insight into uh, the 21st century condition. And I think there are now three of his works in that have been translated in English. The first one, and I did not read them in this order, but the first one was Patience with God, which I, is about hope. Yeah. Um, Night of the Confessor, which among other things is about faith. And his latest one that's been translated in English, I Want You to Be on the God of Love. So he is actually doing a trilogy on the theological virtues. And I have not read the last one. Yeah, I'm in the middle of it right now. But in the beginning of it, I think this is a good summary of his project. Part of the reason we are attracted to it, and we actually, there's a, <laughs> there's a lost episode of New Persuasive Words. And by lost, we mean like not, we're not, we're not not releasing it. We, we really lost it. Lost it. It was in the early days. Maybe the best thing we ever did. Yeah, exactly. It was. It it's was. Kind of, that's the poetry of it. It was only to the, only you and I and God heard it. But um, anyway. Maybe Steve Lipless, listening, <laughs> listening devices. Or Putin with that little elf on the oh, shelf no, over the there. Shelf. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, here I think is a good summary of his project. Um, in several of my books, I deal with the dialogue between belief and unbelief which I suggest is not a quarrel between two warring parties, but is something that takes place within many people. At the same time, I try to demonstrate that belief of a certain kind and unbelief of a certain kind are two different interpretations, two views from different angles of the same mountain, veiled in a cloud of mystery and silence. Time and again, I have interpreted the unbelief of our epic as a collective dark night of the soul, as the Good Friday moment of the eclipse of God, which non-believers may interpret as the death of God and believers as the necessary passage to the Easter morning. Mm, yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, he, you know, there's two people that, I mean, he's, he quotes many people, and obviously the title of this book is a quote from Augustine. But um, in some levels, he's taking, again, in his, where he, where he does ministry, the vast majority of people don't believe in God. Yeah. Uh, even though you heard an interview where he's literally, I, mean, I don't know if he said this in an interview, but he's baptized thousands. Thousands, yeah, thousands, thousands. And he, he's actually at a church because he's a professor now. And he is, it's, it's very interesting because a university parish or something, or an mm -hmm. academic parish yeah. is the term. And basically that means he's this, not only a professor, but he's the parish priest, sort of like a chaplain. And he has a parish full of students and faculty. And he, yeah, he said he's baptized thousands of adults. So it's, it's very interesting. I think that there's sometimes a paranoia about secularization that it's, it's going to kill the faith. And actually it seems for him, it's reinvigorated the faith. I mean, you know, that he's probably baptizing more adults than most Southern Baptists in this country. Well, I think, um, well, at least for the first time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to, I was in Texas, and uh, we finally had to have a talk with uh, with the Baptist pastor in town because our kids would go over there for sleepovers. Uh, you know, they had Baptist friends, and the Baptists kept trying to baptize them on the Sunday morning. So well, we, yeah. we it's, it's, there's that story. We baptized them. There's yeah. a story about the uh, this kid who was, you know, going down every, every time for the, you know, rededication. Fill me, Lord, fill me. 
And one of his friends says, don't do it. He leaks. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a number. I think it's really interesting because uh, what, you know, what is the current response to, you know, the whatever you want to call it, post-Christianity, um, uh, the breakdown of the church in so many ways. And, uh, you know, there are some people who kind of go prehistory. So, you know, you, you build a museum to the uh, theme park, to the ark, and pretend the world is 6,000 years old. And, you know, the science is our enemy. You have you have that. So you have the the kind of the... Bill, it is. All right, the paleo kind of, let's go back to pretend we don't know what we know. Uh, you have kind of the resurgence of, all right, we're going to just have real Christianity. And that, you know, it's funny. I, I'm a historian. I, I'm always suspicious of that. And even as someone in my 50s, I've lived through so many phases of real Christianity. Um, yeah, and again, we, we, we have fun with our neo-Anabaptist friend. But that's just a different version of let's get a pure church and, and escape. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, the... the uh, liberal church, in some levels, is just fully em- fully embraces you know anything modern, and eventually, it's not worth getting up in the morning to go to it because it's more you know more edifying to go to a nice brunch and read the New York Times in the morning or your paper of choice. So, I think his is a unique uh, his is a unique response because it is. Uh, not embracing it as saying, you know, we can't beat them, join it, join them. But for him, it's almost a point of fact. This is where we are. But in the larger scope of, of who God is, it's actually fairly coherent to something that's been part of the faith uh, almost from the beginning, not the idea of uh, the in, you know, nobility of God. Yeah. And, you know, he, he says in, in the Patience with God book, you know, it's, he he talks about uh, Zacchaeus as the prototype, right. right? And he says that, you know, that he feels called himself to be an understanding neighbor for those who keep their distance. And, you know, I think it's, I always, I often wonder this, like what happened at that meal with Zacchaeus? Because Jesus, you know, of all the people calls Zacchaeus down, who's, you know, I, I guess a man of, Short stature, he had to get up in a tree. But I always I, picture Danny DeVito. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, or Joe <laughs> Pesci. Yeah, in other words, uh, yeah, I mean, he has this really attractive, good, rich guy that he sends away uh, to a lesson, uh, I guess, in, it's just in Luke's cause, less than two chapters earlier. And he says, it's, uh, you know, it's impossible for the rich yeah. to enter into the kingdom of God. And then he turns around and finds a rich Danny DeVito to save. Yeah, yeah. who's sitting in a tree and at a distance. And he says, right. I'm going to eat with you. And I'm sure the crowd was scandalized by that. Cause here's a guy who is, <laughs> right. he was, you know, sucking the blood out of his own people. Right. You know, tax collecting is a good racket cause you can skim off the top. You just get the taxes to the Herodians, the Romans, you know, and you, you've got the state behind you. So you've got, you know, it, it's a real racketeering thing. And, you know, so despised probably by the Romans, despised by his own people, a true outsider, and Jesus eats at his house, and and he is changed person. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's, it's it is a it's a fascinating story. And I always, you know, it's funny again, Christians who rail against the tax rate. Um, and again, I, I, there's nothing wrong with asking for reform and fairness, but 
when Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, between the tax that the Herodians would take, the Romans, and then you throw in the temple tax. I mean, there's nothing left. You would, not want to, you would not want to live under that rate in the time of Jesus. No. Well, thank, we're making America great again. There we Low are. taxes. There we go. No, no sure. taxes if we're rich. So Zacchaeus would do... Would, you and I might not do so well, but Zacchaeus would do well do in, okay. in the new world order. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that um, Howard liked about Schleiermacher was he wrote a book on hermeneutics and he thought that it's actually still studied, I mean, by people that are into hermeneutics inside and outside the church. And he says, you know, one of the first principles is empathy. And Schleiermacher was the first person to translate Plato into German. Uh, so, I mean, this guy was just a, I mean, he was, a, he I, do, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. I th- I'm yeah. pretty sure he was the first, uh, or one of the, yeah. I mean, they, uh, people were reading it, I guess, in Greek um, and stuff. Like, I don't know that. I think that's true. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Or, or it, it was at least the first critical edition, but I think it was the first actually. He was just a polymath, but the thing about empathy, and I found this really interesting article that Halleck wrote that I had never seen about Europe after secularism. And at the end of the article, there's uh, a, an ellipsis over this paragraph it says not to change the world, but to understand it. And he says in that section, he says, it looks as though it will be necessary to turn the old Marxist axiom on its head for too long. We have tried to change the world. It is now time to make a responsible and concentrated effort to interpret and understand the world and our relationship to it. And you know, it's funny because Marx is famous for, you know, we've tried to understand the world when I thought the point was to change it. I think Halleck is saying, yeah, no, actually, we need to stop trying to change the world and try to understand it. Like, try to, like, get a picture for all of the complexities that exist in it and have an empathetic approach to that reality. Yeah. And I think that, like, I mean, the opposite of love is control. I think so many responses to secularity or to other religious traditions or to things we disagree with is control. You know, like, we get our own news sites, our own facts— we marshal, build a, a hedge around ourselves and, and try to create something to control. And I think Halleck, part of, I mean, again, he's a psychotherapist, probably I would guess a good one. Uh, but it's, I think some of the key things we need right now are, are people that are seeking to understand before they're understood. Yeah, you know, I think uh, an often either misunderstood or ignored phrase that Jesus says is the poor will always be with you. You know, when he's criticized for allowing Mary uh, to anoint his feet with um, an expensive perfume um, on the, you know, right before he died. And I do think that it's an open statement. In other words, it's an invitation to engage with the poor. Okay, the poor will always be with you, so you need to be with the poor. Okay. This is, but this moment is about me, and it's okay for it to be about me. I think the other thing, too, is it. It. it and again, I'm not trying to overread a rhetorical uh, response Jesus had there, but um, there is no solution out there that's going to eradicate, you know, eradicate poverty. Yeah. And I think, um, and I think sometimes, you know, in the name of kingdom. Uh, whatever that, you know, that can be both your, you know, wild-eyed Pentecostal, you know, that God will heal you and give you all you want now. But in some levels, I think um, some progressive Christians are as naive 
as 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 uh, you know healing and prosperity Christians because there's a sense where and it's it's not because God has willed that people suffer in poverty. It's this that we even if we want to do something about it, we're not able to pull it off in totem because it's 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 so ingrained in the primal sin of humanity, you know, we're not our brother's keeper. Yeah. And there's no formula for righteousness either. I mean, there's no, like we, you can't engineer the end of poverty. You can't engineer the end of immorality. Like you can't, I mean, the the great platonic mistake is that sin is ignorance. That if people were just enlightened enough that, that we're, that somehow if we know enough that we will be better people, or I think, you know, it's a, you know the, the age the the peak of the age of enlightenment was the peak of the age of genocide. I mean, where, right, right. you know th- these are things that uh, and, and and a call to patience. I think is yeah, patience salutary. with other people and also patience with God. I mean, and that's some of what hope is. In other words, um, I mean, you know, we've all been captivated by Aleppo, and um, and of course, what is yeah, no, um, but I mean, it's so tragic. But I, you know. What exactly could we have done there? Um, you know, that's part of the problem with our whole policy in the Middle East, the unintended consequences, because we did save a um, a city in Libya from genocide for the most part. And uh, the people we saved were some of the same people that killed our ambassador. Yeah. So, so I, yeah. I did, yeah, so I, I think it's a complicated thing. And again, that's not, I mean, I, I think... Uh, but sometimes if we just cry out about these horrible things, at least it makes us feel better about ourselves. I mean, I, I think in some level, you know, I think this whole um, venting about the election, and you and I have certainly have done it as well, it, it makes us feel like, okay, we, um, um, you know, we've done something about something we don't have any control over. Uh, um, but I do think patience with the world is not complacency, but it sometimes you know, you know, even though you slay me, yet I will serve you, God, is, is part of this idea of of being patient with the unfolding mystery of, of the human drama, which uh, includes an awful lot of tragedies that we can't do anything about, that no one can do anything about. Yeah, and that, I think that, I mean, that is, what Halleck says, is why he has very little patience for fundamentalism, or, well, uh, he doesn't, see, he doesn't say very little patience. Why? What he finds lacking in both fundamentalism and atheism is the lack of patience. Right. He says neither atheism nor fundamentalism can tolerate the mystery of the divine in all of its ambiguity in its manifestation in the world. And that basically he says, well, if if there weren't if if, if things were so obvious, there would be no need for faith. And what he thinks fundamentalism and atheism do is dispel the need for faith. Yeah, they, they both throw themselves off the pinnacle of the temple. The ellipsis to patience with God is a quote I've been it's circulating. And uh, people at Mockingbird have latched onto this. And I think it's, it's from Adele Bestavros, who was an Egyptian Christian. I didn't know anything about this guy. He's a very accomplished lawyer, a Christian layperson, mm. uh, amazing, vibrant Egyptian Christian. And he says, patience with others is love. Patience with the self is patience. With self is hope. Patience with God is faith. Yeah, and that and that's been kind of a stepping off point for Alex' project. At least what's written in English. You know, here's this interesting idea, particularly I think in light of um, 
Advent 4, which is love, although some calendars go joy, but at any rate, um, that love is is a leap into the unknowable, and uh, that it both descends the objective and the subjective. Yeah. And that in that it, 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 how it does that is that, for instance, once you actually love someone, okay, you, you are no longer, uh, that's, I have to go do a fox hunt. That's my, tr- that's the call of my phone out in the other room. Oh, okay. I was like, fine. I was like, that's just such a strange ring. I know. I know. It's, well, it's one of those bugle trumpets. So it makes me feel, you know, kind of King Arthur ish. I thought the Lord was coming. Well, I hope he does soon, but we have to be patient mm. with him. But at any rate, this idea of, uh, and I apologize for that, I, I usually turn well, that it off. a nice effect of it. It did, recording. it could be. Um, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, then exactly. time shall be no more. That we can talk about, so, you know, some, we've always talked about people who are in love with love. Yeah. Love with the idea, all right? And, and, our, and you have to, almost our, our entire pop culture, and that it, it, you know, it, it starts in the you know, Middle Ages. So we, you know, it's not just something we invented, this, this idea of romantic love, and that that's what makes the world go around as an idea. But love is not just an idea, nor is it a, merely a feeling. Um, when you actually love, there's something, you, there's a leap into the unknown. Because there's, there, is, there is a moment when you're loving someone that it's neither about a feeling or about an idea. And for him, that he thinks that's part of this, you know, the unknowability of God who invites us to know God. I mean, the great paradox is that it is a step into the, the mystery. For, for instance, you know, let's say when you, when you have a child, and so, and let's say it's in, it's in the best of circumstances. You're excited about having this child. You, you even love the child before it's born. Um, and, you know, someone, you know, I have a psychology background, so I mean, I was thinking developmentally the whole time and just so excited about that. And, you know, when you, when you first hold your child, there's such a, an experience that's beyond words. It's a profound feeling. It's a profound knowing. And that's an amazing thing. All right. A day later, two days later, you're sitting on the bed and Stuff is coming out of both the mouth and the rear end of this baby all over you. And you realize, oh my, this is like, I've been sentenced, you know, one to life here. (laughs) And it's not that it's a negative thing. It's an overwhelming thing. And regardless of how much you know about child rearing or the child development, and no matter how much you have felt that he's positive feelings, there's this entering into this adventure that's both exhilarating and tragic and downright tedious that you have nothing to know about. But I think that, that there's a realness there. And so there's, there's times where we touch upon it in the human experience. You know, it's when romance turns into commitment. That may be you've, you've moved into a different realm in, in love and relationships. But I, I think that's part of, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I've just started the book, but I think that's part of what he, he reflects on uh, in terms of this idea of the mystery of love, it transcends uh, both what we know and what we feel. Yeah, you know, I mean, Howard's favorite theologian was probably Schleiermacher. And the thing that there's probably some differences between Schleiermacher and Hillock, but also some threads that run together. And one of the things that Schleiermacher thought the whole purpose of creation was the incarnation. 
And he said, basically, at the heart of creation is love. And he said, it's, it's very interesting, Schleiermacher notes, that the only direct statement about the being of God that's not metaphorical in the New Testament is God is love. You know, it's the most direct statement right. about God's being. And he said, love desires to unite with another. And so the whole drama of the created system of the created order, Schleiermacher thinks, is that God could unite with his other, with, with his creatures. And I think that that is always a risk. Like at the, yeah. at the heart of us, that's what we all desire so much. Like we all desire to know and be known. And despite all the self-sabotaging we do in that process and being victimized and being in victimizers that, you know, suppress and subordinate and, and sabotage it. Like at the end of the day, there's a reason we want that. And that's because we are created but from love <laughs> yeah, absolutely. and we want to know the sense of being beloved. And this was something that was near and dear to my friend Howard, our friend Howard's heart. And uh, something he, he was like one of the last psychiatrists that did long talk sessions still when everybody's just writing prescriptions. Right. I mean, he was uh, a man that was very patient with others. Yeah. Uh, the title of Halleck's book, I want you to be, uh, it's a quote from Augustine and, and um, at some levels, God is, giving us uh, a variation of his own name. Yeah. And um, that's a powerful thing. That's the part of uh, let all mortal flesh be silent at the, the miracle that we rehearse again this, this season. And we rehearse it in the bleak midwinter. Shepherd, be beloved with us. 